Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. I'm really thrilled that you are with us because I'm thrilled about our um, conversational partner today, the Reverend Kim Jackson. Uh, Kim is the priest for the Church of the Common Ground, and she has recently been elected to the Georgia State Senate. It's a wonderful story, and we want to hear all about it, and also just kind of tap her heart, mind, and brain about where we are these days, and where do we go from here. But first, let's welcome the Reverend Kim Jackson. Welcome back to the forum, Kim. Oh, thanks for having me, Ed. It's so good to see you. Thank you. It's great to see you. It's always wonderful to talk with you. I love what you think about and how you think about it. So it's uh, really great to have you. So um, it is not um, unheard of for there to be a priest or a clergy person in a house of legislation both at the state and the federal level, and it's not the most common thing. So could you tell us, before you start talking about your work as a state senator, what you think at this point in your life, how you got here from childhood on, what made you both a priest and a legislator? Yeah, it's such an interesting journey. Um, I, I knew when I was just eight years old that I wanted to be a pastor. I felt that pull. I mean, I grew up in a Baptist church, Ed, so you know, like I, I had that I had that pull um, and, and knew <laughs> very much that I know it well. I, yeah, um, that I wanted to be a pastor. And so, very similarly, when I was 13 years old, I went to, um, I had a whole day where they were taking all the kids around to learn about public service. And so we started the morning off like at EMS and we went to the, the call center and firefighters and the jail, you know, we learned all about public service, but we ended the night at the city hall. And that night, the Spartanburg's first black mayor was presiding over the city council. And I sat there and had that same kind of pull, that light bulb moment, that like Holy Spirit descend upon me moment where I was clear that I wanted to, I felt called in fact to serve an elected leadership. Um, that I, I saw, you know, I, I've said this a number of times to folks, I didn't know the where and I didn't necessarily know the how, but I knew that the what of my life was a calling to make a difference in the world, to make this world better than the world that I was born into. And so at 13, that was clear to me. And um, it's obviously been a journey with many different parts. And I, I will say, once I became an Episcopal priest and uh, moved to a more progressive area of town, I actually thought the possibility of me running for office was probably um, not gonna happen because I you know, kind of travel in these circles where people are very um, suspicious of clergy and being in political spaces. And I think rightfully so, right? Um, people are very, very suspicious. And so I kind of put that dream on the back burner. Um, but when uh, Cle Clemente Pinckney, he was one of 
he was the pastor um, who was killed at Mother Emanuel. Well, he also was a senator. He was a state senator in South Carolina. And so at his funeral, as I listened to them talk about, you know, the Reverend Senator Clemente Pinckney, there was that that came back alive for me, that calling and passion. And I, I felt like, oh, this this is possible. Um, he he was able to do this and 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 be at a main you know major church and really guide people and so it just kind of reawoke within me that that calling and that longing to serve an elected office and that was I don't know maybe three or four years ago and and here I am today. Thanks for reminding us that Reverend Pinckney was a legislator. I had forgotten that. Yeah. Um, and also, thank you for recounting what you've just recounted. I got in touch with my, um, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I have this natural affection for you, it's because my father was an ordained Baptist preacher. He was also an elected county school superintendent. Really? So I grew up as a kid handing out campaign literature and making campaign speeches for my father and also leading the music in the service that he preached in, That's in the awesome. Baptist church. So I gravitate to you folks who are both in politics and in religion. It just makes perfect sense to me. So hooray for you. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks, Ed. Yeah. So just in case there's some people who are tuned in who don't know about the Church of the Common Ground, let's stop there for a beat before we go on to the Senate and your actual first month or two in office. So tell us about Common Ground, please. Sure. So the Church of the Common Ground uh, is a congregation. It's a church for people who live on the streets of Atlanta or who have lived on the streets of Atlanta. So the vast majority of my congregation um, sleep outside or sleep in shelters right now. And we do church together, just like St. Luke's church, right? Uh, we have we have classes that we take together. We have worship. Um, we, we're church. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one of the greatest gifts of my life, honestly, is to be able to serve as priest and pastor to a people who often find themselves not welcome in more traditional churches, yeah. but are able to show up at common ground just as they are, whether they have been in a shelter and able to, you know, get new clothes and, and be clean, or whether they've been sleeping outside for, for months at a time, they just get to be who they are just as they are. And, and it's just a real gift for me to be able to show up for them. It's really cold outside. How are they, how are your parishioners doing? It is really cold outside. Um, thankfully, when it is really cold outside, there are warming shelters that open in Atlanta. Also because of COVID, there have been a significant number of people who've been placed in housing, who've been placed in hotels or in apartments. And so there are fewer people on the streets right now, um, which is just a real gift. And I, I hope we can continue that pattern in Atlanta of housing more people more quickly. But on the coldest nights, when it's under 39 degrees, people are, um, they, we pick them up in buses and, and they're taken to shelter. Got it, good deal. So let's turn to the Senate. Um, you're pretty green, right? I am very, very green. <laughs> when, when were you sworn in? I was sworn in. <laughs> the second week in January, I'm 17 legislative days old. That's how old I am. So very, very green. And in general, what's it like? You know, it's, it is hard and good and um, 
I mean, it's like drinking from a fire hose in some ways. It has this really interesting rhythm um, in that it's both uh, sometimes very, very slow. And so like the first 10 days or so, we, I, I made a joke that if we didn't have a chaplain of a day every day, we wouldn't have anything to do. Because um, we really do kind of just come in, um, listen to a chaplain of the day and do a little cleanup work. And, and then we go on while people are writing legislation and doing the committee process. So it's been strangely um, on the floor, kind of slow, but then in the background, I'm busy like calling people and talking to people and answering emails and trying to figure out what my first piece of legislation is going to be and how to how to make it through the process. So it's been it's been wild um, and probably the busiest uh, legislative 17 legislative days of my life, right? So you have answered the question, what is your first piece of legislation going to be? So tell us about that and tell us about your first hearing. Sure, yeah, so I, my first piece of legislation that I dropped um, was SB 75, Senate Bill 75, and it provides lease relief for people who have been stalked. So stalking is a major problem throughout the United States, um, and it continue, it's also a problem here in Georgia. And what happened was two years ago, our legislators who predate me Made, um, made a decision that people who are experiencing family domestic violence, that they should be able to get out of their leases you know, as, as quickly as possible. So with 30 days notice, um, they could move in order to move to safety. And so I just came back around and said, you know, people who are being stalked, they need that same thing too. So uh, let's, let's try to make that happen. So that's the bill that I have. Uh, it's written in much more technical, you know, lawyerly language, which I'm grateful for attorneys who can do that for me. And it received a hearing on last Wednesday in the Judiciary Committee. Lots and lots of questions, but at the end of the day, they unanim unanimously passed that bill out of committee. So I'm thrilled about that, um, not just for me, but because they're, you know, one in seven people uh, in Georgia will or have been stopped. I mean, the numbers are significant. And so I'm excited that we're making some moves to try to make life a little safer for those folks. It seems almost a hidden fact because that's not what we talk about at the dinner table. Right. Yeah, it's not it's not something we talk about when we think about relationships and healthy relationships, yeah. uh, you know, or unhealthy relationships. Stalking is usually not included as a symptom of unhealthy relationships, um, but in fact, it is. And this is actually a perfect segue. My next bill, my second bill um, that will receive a hearing this coming Wednesday is SB 197. And it addresses this very fact that there are unhealthy relationships um, in which people are being stalked by their partners in their own homes. Mm -hmm. So right now, Georgia law um, says that you can't, it's not possible legally to be stalked in your own home by your own partner. Um, there's a carve out. So you can be stalked by a stranger, you can be stalked outside, but the idea that someone could be stalking you in your own residence uh, at the time that that law was made just <coughs> didn't seem possible to people. So my bill comes back and, and strikes that language from the code saying that it excludes your own residence and, and says, in fact, no, including your own residence, because we know that there are a number of of people who become victims um, ultimately of, of domestic homicide, but many of those who are killed by their own partners, it started with a year or more 
of stalking of their partners uh, knowing exactly where they were going you know how long they were gone tracking them on social media putting trackers on their cars um all these kinds of things you know normally we talk about unhealthy relationships and it's abuse right it's physical abuse where people are being beaten but this is another form of abuse stalking and now i'm proposing a law that would acknowledge that and allow people to get a temporary protective order if they become victims of such a thing I hope this is not too granular or nerdy, but I'm just curious if there is a pattern in these two bills you have and are about to introduce um, and kind of their genesis to their expression and manifestation to then being voted on. Is there, is there kind of one way that that happens or are there a million different ways like all of life is very complex. So how this story will end could end in a million different ways, but the story began with the same genesis. It was uh, an organization that's in my district that it used to be called the Georgia or the Gwinnett Rape Crisis Center. Um, they introduced themselves to me and to their work and they said to me, you know, hey, Senator Jackson, we know that you were really um, interested and worked very hard to get rape kits counted and tested in Georgia before you were even elected. So we've got this problem that we think maybe you be, might be willing to carry for us. And it's these issues around stalking. So the genesis was at the same place. And, uh, you know, this I think legislation at its best is when the community comes to you and says, hey, there's a need. And so yeah. that's what happened that the tenant release bill started with the mosaic is the name of the organization now coming to me. And then once I pushed that bill out, other women who were in these types of organizations saw that I was carrying one stalking bill. And of course, they called immediately and said, hey, you're carrying this one. Can you carry this next one too? They're very related. And so I've been really grateful to have a, a large group of domestic violence centers and um, sexual assault centers and, and just women who do these this work kind of surround me and help me to develop good legislation on behalf of Georgians. How wonderful. Uh, it, it occurs to me that you now symbolize and represent a safe space for people to bring their concerns about people who really do need legislative protection or advocacy. Congratulations. Well, thank you. This is, you know, when I went home the night that I dropped the bill, so I dropped it, you know, two weeks ago now, when I went home that night, I was just like, this is what I was elected for. It felt it felt exactly right in that moment. So I'm really grateful to be offering legislation that I think really matters for some of Georgia's most vulnerable. Yeah. Now that I've uh, shown you myself to be a nerd, I also want to show myself as somebody who um, will reflect theologically about almost anything. And my spiritual father is Thomas Merton, who said that absolutely every person, when they are created, have a word of God breathed into them that they can't make up. And it is very unique and nobody else has that word. And my experience is that it's a juxtaposition of things you would never think would be put together. But here you had an, a, a call when you were 18 and a call when you were 13 of putting these two things together. And here is part of, but not all of your unique sacred word. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And 
I, I want to be clear with people that I do feel like I am absolutely living exactly the life that I have been called to live. And even still, it's not easy, right? Yeah. It's still, it still has its challenges. I still, um, I still have questions about how to go about it, but I am so very clear and I feel so, so richly blessed to be able to live into my calling. There's so many others. I mean, this is the story of people who are at common ground. Uh, so many of my siblings who now live on the streets um, through a variety of reasons, many of them often rooted in systemic racism, have not had the opportunity to live into their full calling, right? To respond to that voice that was breathed into them, that word that was breathed into them at birth. So many of them have not had that opportunity. So I don't take it for granted. I feel incredibly um, grateful to be able to be in the, to be born for such a time as this yeah, and to be doing these things for such a time as this for, for all of God's children. Oh, I love it. Amen. I'm coming down the aisle and giving myself to Jesus again. <laughs> <laughs> Way to preach. So um, there's also this uniqueness about you, right? You're the first. I am the first. <laughs> yes, I am the first uh, out state senator in Georgia. And I hope to not be the last. 2022 will come soon. And I hope somebody comes along with me. Very good. Anybody giving you any kind of interesting responses like, yeah, or what is this or anything in between? You know, I, I had a legislator who came up to me. There was a, you know, a radio interview that they heard and, and they said, well, I had no idea that you were, and they didn't, they couldn't say the word. Um, <laughs> and that was just like a lesbian. And they were like, yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. And they were very quick to say, I mean, it's almost like how, I know y'all are white, but I'm going to say it. It's almost how white people whisper black. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that's how it was with me being yep. a lesbian. Um, but he was very quick to say, it doesn't matter. It's, it's okay. It doesn't matter to me. I just didn't know that you were that you were a lesbian and that you were the first one. So, um, you know, I had that incident. But honestly, I think that many of my fellow legislators have no idea what my sexual orientation is. Yeah. So there aren't comments about it. Yeah. And your first let your first hearing was on Ash Wednesday. Yes. So, and um, I think you'll appreciate this. As a priest, we wear our collet collars all the time, right? Um, but as a senator, I've never worn my collar to the Senate. Like I've never worn it on on the floor or to hearings. But because my hearing was on Ash Wednesday, um, I had to go from Ash Wednesday service at Common Ground outside to testifying and presenting my bill in front of the Judiciary Committee. So I didn't have a chance to change my collar, you know, change out of it. So I, yes, I present it in my collar and with the like ash smudge <laughs> on my head. And afterwards, a, a fellow said to me, he's like, well, I wish I could bring a priest with me to every time I had a bill to be heard because clearly it's very successful. Um, <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. Very good. Wear it with holy pride, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, I do wear it with holy pride. And I also try to wear it, though. Um, I, I try to be strategic about when I wear it Indeed. or careful about yeah. when I wear it. You know, it's a, it's a complex 
it's a complex choice. And I'm, I've had actually a number of St. Luke's people ask me when I was running, are you going to wear your collar? And, and so I'm still figuring that out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still figuring out when to wear mine and when not to wear mine, even as a old crotchety priest. <laughs> so, um, Kim, it's, it has been for me a very tumultuous, disorienting January. Um, I have kind of white knuckled it and prayed a lot um, through the transition in the Oval Office. And then was really minding my own business um, on the Feast of the Epiphany. And we had most of it videoed and, and we're not even gonna have a homily. And there I saw this insurrection on TV, couldn't believe my eyes, pulled together an emergency staff meeting. We redid the whole thing. And all of a sudden I was getting dressed to go downtown to preach live. Um, and I still haven't gotten fully my orientation back. Furthermore, I'm, this is the prefatory remark to my question. Furthermore, I think I was really too naive about the reality that this gathering was the manifestation of some long brewing dynamics in this country. And then when I saw that guy with a Nordic horn hat on praying a public sermon, I mean prayer, in the seat of the president of the Senate. And Kim, he prayed the way we pray in the Baptist church. Yeah. I mean, this guy had some practice in public prayer. And he prayed in the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, he, did. he was not praying for what I pray for. And then I read an article that said, you cannot understand the insurrection until you understand Christian nationalism. Wow. So I've been going to school on all that, been preaching it and teaching it. All of that is my preferatory remarks to pose my two questions to you. With the new president, with the new, with the fact that we really didn't have a peaceful transition of power, and we had a convention of Christian nationalists in the United States, in Georgia, in wherever, where are we? And where do we go from here, Kim? Yeah. Sorry for the long question. No, no, Ed, it's it's right on. Um, you know, I was on, I was interviewed with a panel of some folks, and a white mayor from Middle Georgia said, you know, uh, the January sixth insurrection. You know, that that's not us. That's not us. Um, and I responded, you know, very respectfully, and said, no, that that is us, and we need to face that. Um, and I think even more apropos to today, that is Christianity. Um, right. And I think right. 
all in that and we need to confront that uh, yes often as episcopalians we're like well we're not like that right and while there's some truth to that we are still that and there there are some ways in which our religion has been and continues to be used uh to to support and uphold white supremacy systemic racism, um, the sense of uh, supremacy, broadly speaking, nationalism. Um, so we have to confront that reality about us. That is yes. us. Yes. Um, and, you know, you talk about it being, you know, brewing. This is, some of this is 400 years in the making. That's right. Right. Um, so, so where, so where are we now? I think right now we are at this, this apex where we've got to make some choices as a country and as a people. We saw in June of last year, people of all colors, races, and nationalities rise up and demand racial justice and do that broadly around the world. Some call this the largest civil rights movement of the world that we saw happen um, in the summertime. And then in the wintertime, we saw white folks rise up um, and demand a different kind of justice. And so now I think we sit at that crossroads of having to decide what do we mean by justice? What does justice look like? Um, for whom are we seeking justice? And, and how do we live together uh, as, as a people? And we're also sitting at this place, I think where we are now is that we also have to be able to start to repent um, and acknowledge the ways that we have harmed one another. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically, I'm talking specifically as a clergy person, as a Christian, right? Um, so naming the way that as a Christian who was root, I mean, I was raised in that same tradition, right? I could pray like that brother prayed. Um, you know, that we, we're at a place where we need to begin to repent and really repent for the ways that our religion has harmed this nation. Um, and, and harmed us all. So I think that's, that's where we are now uh, on a kind of a broader level. I think on a Georgia level, um, we look at state politics, we are at a place where our access to the ballot is a threat um, and is threatened and uh, our ability to exercise our right to participate in this democracy is under attack in ways that we have not seen um, in my lifetime and maybe not even in yours, Ed. Uh, so we, <laughs> sorry, that didn't, come out quite right. <laughs> I liked it though. I, I liked it. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so in Georgia, we, you know, the ballot box is under attack and, and many will say, and this is true, that the ballot box is under attack for black and brown people who live in Georgia. And that's true. But here's the thing. Here's the reality about how, um, how racist machines work. While they are built to churn up black people, white people will get caught up in it too. And so while uh, many of these bills that we see in the Georgia House and Senate have been created to make voting more difficult for black folks, um, there are white people who will be caught up in this too. And, and so we are all at risk here. Um, we all have to stand up, I think, together collectively to uh, fight for access to the ballot, to continue access. And, and here's the truth. Unless we have Republicans of good conscience rise up and say, we will not participate in this. Any number of those bills, those bad bills will pass. Um, so I've been calling on Republicans of good conscience, Republicans who believe in the sanctity of the ballot to step up and say, no, we will not, uh, we will not uh, put barriers between us and the ballot box. 
But here's the other part. Where we're going in Georgia, if these bills pass, which, you know, again, we pray that Republicans of good conscience rise up, but if they don't, where we're going to move to is one of the largest, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this today, so you guys can play it later when it happens. We're, we will be moving to one of the largest grassroots mobilizations efforts to get people out to vote that the world has ever seen in 2022. What you will see is that people who do believe in the sanctity of the ballot will go out and knock door to door. They will bring scanners and scan people's IDs for them if they can't do it. That's what you're gonna see. You will see people who are like us, you and me, who believe in the sanctity of the ballot, rise up and fight and take down all of those barriers that they're seeking to put up um, through this bill. So I'm actually looking forward to seeing us get more engaged in democracy. I like a good fight. Um, I wish we didn't have to fight this one, but I do believe that's where we're moving towards is you're gonna see, um, you're gonna see people really rise up for in behalf of our democracy and fight like hell to make sure that people who wanna vote get a chance to vote. So those are four different big things. Yeah. Each of them I want to revisit. Sure. Before we revisit all four points, and I was taking notes, I do want to go back to this if that you introduced. If the Republicans of good conscience step forward, I am told that behind the MSNBC and Fox News polarization of Republicans and Democrats and all of the internecine war, <clears throat> intranecine war going on in the Republican Party, that there really are people who are saying, the country is at stake, not my party. And that, that's not coming forward because it's not politic for it to come forward. Yeah. But as somebody who's now living with people across the aisle and it, it's to your benefit as a successful and efficacious legislature to do so, when the camera lights turn off, are you discovering people with whom you can have a conversation? Here's what I know. I've introduced three bills in the Georgia Senate, two about stalking, one in which would require the Georgia Department of Corrections to provide an ID to any inmate who is released, any person who is released from their custody. All three of my bills have been signed by Republicans. That's what I know. I know that when I went to a Republican who was a former law enforcement officer. And I said to him, hey, Randy, we've got a problem. My parishioner has been getting released and they've been released without an ID. Can you help me with that? He was eager to sign online too, right? Uh, so that, that's what I know. Um, I, I know that there are places, there are touch points where, where we can meet. Um, and I, as a person of faith, whose Lenten practice for this season of Lent is to see past all of the political bullshit. Can I say that here? I just yes. did. Yes. <laughs> My Lenten discipline has been to see past all of the political bullshit and to consciously see my fellow Republicans 
as brothers and sisters, as siblings created by the same God. And because that is my discipline, I have to believe that there are Republicans of good conscience who could stand up and fight. I don't know if they will, but when you pull it all back, I do see them as our siblings. And I'm very hopeful that one or two, you know, as the, you know, the altar call says, will there be one, <laughs> you know, will there be two? I'm, I'm very hopeful that there will be one, that there will be two, that there will be some who will stand up and say, this is about our democracy. This is about us as a whole and not just about the party. I'm, I'm hopeful, um, but I'm also a realist. And so I, so, you know, we'll see how it goes. I'm so glad that you stated your answer to me as, Ed, this is what I know. You didn't opine, you gave testimony. And I really, really find that to be powerful and stable and solid. <clears throat> so, oh, and thanks for uh, sharing with us what your Lenten discipline is also. I think that's powerful. So let's go back to the first point you made, which was that we have to repent. We who bear the word Christian have to repent that our religion has caused a whole bunch of this. Now, everybody brace yourself. I'm going to use something, a term that does invite discomfort, but I want to go there. And that is, and, 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 and I'm connecting this with some other conversations we have going on with some leaders at Sewanee who are repenting and saying no more do we identify with slaveholding confederacy consciousness which drove part of the founding of the University of the South mm. so that white men could take their rightful place in history because of the gift from God of the slavery business. Mm. And that that is the place for people of African descent so that white men can be thinkers and leaders from the South for the world. And this very impressive institution has said, no more, we disavow that. That is an act of repenting and reckoning. Now, what makes people uncomfortable, that is slaveholder Christianity. And slaveholder Christianity is different from the religion of Jesus. That's right. Any words you wanna add to that, put to that, because that's how I appropriate it as a white, a skinned Southern Christian Episcopal priest. Yeah, you know, it reminds me, so Howard Thurman's, I think it was his grandmother, uh, you know, has, was having the scripture read to her. And uh, there's a portion in our, in our Bible where there's, a, where the scripture says that slaves are to obey their masters. And uh, she says that the way the, the story goes is that she told the reader to stop reading that, that that's, that's not a part of her religion. That's not her Christianity, right? Um, 
and because she was a follower of Jesus and, and, and such things did not have a place for her uh, in her theology. And, and so I think that's, I think that's what you're talking about here Ed, is. is, is that there was this slaveholder white supremacist um, brand of Christianity that people have to turn away from and, and repent for. And I think it's absolutely crucial. There's repentance and then there's reparations too, right? right. So I hope we get to both. Yes. Um, but I think we struggle just to even do the first one. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I will say, you know, I was the, um, for a long time, I was the only out person of color. And now you have Forrest, um, priest of color in this diocese. And in early years, I felt like it was my obligation that when I would be invited into spaces with particularly queer youth, um, that I would come and I would wear my collar. And I felt like I had a responsibility to apologize to those children for the harm that my faith had done to them um, and to me. And, and I think that's, that's, that continues to be true that we have to apologize for the harm that Christianity has done to, to the LGBTQ community. And it's broader than that. We have to apologize. We have to repent and repair from the harm that's been done from this slaveocracy, um, this slave holding mentality of, of Christianity, version of Christianity. Yeah. And let's simply reiterate the obvious in what you've been saying is that the repentance is not genuine unless there's repair that goes with it. That's why I always choose Isaiah 58 instead of the Joel passage for Ash Wednesday reading, because in effect, the prophet Isaiah is saying, God is saying that your fast ain't worth beans if you're continuing to oppress people while you're fasting. This is the fast that I think is a genuine fast, and that is to stop the oppression. Yeah. And, and and also to repair the, because that way, the Isaiah 58 finishes, you will be called the repairer of the breach. Yeah. And the repairer is what we're after as a way of signifying authenticity. That's right. That's right. And that's a radical message, right? It's a radical message. It's so radical. And that's why I love being a Christian because that's there, because there is this radical message of, of confession, of repentance and of repair. This radical message of God's ability to see us as we are, to welcome us and call us to be our better selves while loving us all the while through. You know? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's the religion of Jesus instead of the religion about Jesus. And uh, let's, let's do what Jesus did rather than um, honor what we say Jesus did. Um, that's really, really important. And thanks for earlier saying that this is uh, about race and about heteronormativity and about Christian supremacy and saying that people of other religions ain't there or people of no religion ain't there. We're all siblings in the same family. I, I love, um, I asked these questions of, of Bishop Wright in a conversation like this not long ago and he gave me three new S's. Um, and he said, if you really are gonna be a person who follows love and follows Jesus, 
follows God, is a person of the spirit, you're going to have to give up three S's. Smallness, separateness, and superiority. Mm. And I love that call because yeah. I think, yeah, that's the thing. Okay, we've got, well, I'm not sure we're going to get to all four of your points. Um, but that was the point about um, reckoning and, and repentance uh, for what I'm saying is slaveholder Christianity or, or that. Uh, the second point was about, about Georgia and uh, the whole business about um, we've got to, let me put on my glasses here, um, the racist machinery. Um, we have to make sure that that we do everything we can to dismantle that machinery. And we can't dismantle that machinery without calling it what it is. What did Audre Lorde talk about in terms of the master's house that you... Oh, I can't recall it right now. Tools of the master's house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Master's house to build, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then that led to, you're talking about this great grassroots rising up. Um, in, in many ways, we got a foretaste of that in the runoff elections for okay. Pastor Warnoff, Warnock and, and Mr. Ossoff. So that's what you're talking about. And I'm assuming that now that you have a proximity to that organization uh, in a way that a lot of us don't have. I mean, I feel it from reading the newspaper that there is some deep organizing going on. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and Black women by and large are behind it, right? Yep. And, and this is years and years of organizing that's happening. Um, but I, here, here's the thing, when people get angry, they often do something about it. And these bills that have been dropped that are so egregiously, I mean, it's clear, there's no subterfuge here. These bills are designed to keep brown and black folks from voting. Like, that, that's it, that's what they're designed for. Um, and so the level of, of, of awfulness causes people angry and to anger and you know to um, to be angry and folks are gonna reactivate an already well-built machine to help promote our democracy anyway but it'll be amplified even more um and that's that's actually i'm looking forward to um i'm looking forward to people realizing that we love we value the vote so much that we are willing. I mean, this is the, let's be clear, actually, this is the heritage of black people. So remember when black people were not allowed to vote because we couldn't read, we created schools to teach people how to read. And when they started making us take tests to talk about like how, you know, to quote the constitution, then we taught ourselves how to 
quote the constitution. Every time there has been a hurdle put in front of us, black folks, even when they threatened and then in fact lynched us, we kept pressing for the vote. This is my heritage. And so, you know, take out our ballot boxes and say we can't drop them in drop boxes, say we can't vote absentee without an excuse. We, every block that gets put up, we will knock over. That's our heritage. That's what's coming is folks rising up and saying, we value the vote. We value it enough that we will fight for it. We will give our lives because we've done it before. Let the church say amen. Amen. Yeah. So before you got into that last paragraph, which was wonderful, I was about to pose this question. Well, Reverend Kim Jackson, clearly it sounds like you're one of the people who is coming out of the June 2020 experience with hope instead of skepticism and, um, and despair. But then as you kept going, it's really, really clear. And also what deepened in me while you were speaking is that you are not only speaking out of a conviction that is hopeful, but you are speaking out of a conviction of a movement that has already proven itself. That's right. That's right. It, you know, it's been tested. My wife works at the Highlander Center, which is where uh, you know Rosa Parks was trained in, in nonviolence, and um, you know those folks have their own tools and machines that are, are running. But yeah, I mean, this this is our heritage is is a heritage of fighting, of fighting for the right to vote, and uh, we're practiced in it. And that's actually, I mean, this is, you know, I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna let some Republicans in on the secret. This is the problem. Republicans aren't used to having to work to vote. Um, we're used to it, so we're ready. But when you put up those hurdles and you make it harder for other, for Republicans to vote, y'all might struggle a bit because you're not used to having to fight for it. Yeah. Um, you know, so so I, I, I am I'm still hopeful that we can beat back some of these bad bills. But I am more confident and more clear that whatever obstacles put in our way, we're ready to knock it down. Yeah. So that's a, that is a, a heritage that I'm so glad that you've borne witness to. And it's one of the things that keeps speaking to me from my reading James Cohn's The Little Cross of the Lynching Tree. You know, he says that at the center of the Black theological Christian experience, is this heritage that is alive. It is, it, it, and, and, and John Lewis talked an awful lot about this. And I think it got John Meacham's attention when he would say, you know, I'm not worried. This is not something we have to uh, feed. I mean, we have to give witness to it. But the fact is the beloved community is something that is alive and it's going around and it's calling people uh, to join on. It's an energy. It is a force and it's unkillable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. I do too. Yeah. And, it, and, and, and in my mind, it's the same thing as God. It's the same thing as the Holy Spirit. And it's the same energy that called you when you were eight years old and when you were mm -hmm. 13 years old. You know, it's that kind of thing. And it's that legacy. Um, wow. I, I, um, 
interviewed a guest about a year ago and uh, Robbie Jones, and he had written this book quoting uh, from James Baldwin, and the name of the book is White Too Long, and it's about slaveholder Christianity and how he had to come to terms with the fact that he was raised in that. He's a white guy. And he said, but there was just, there were just times I just had to sit with all this. And it's given me a really important way of being when I, when I, in these conversations, touch on something that you and I just touched on and that you gave witness to. It's frequently something that I just need to stop and breathe with, you know, and sit with. And the other thing I wanted to say in response to that is Dr. Beverly Tatum, you know, the uh, emerita pre uh, president of Spelman, she and I have had two of these conversations and I had introduced the issue of white fragility, which is not dissimilar to what you're talking about in terms of white people who aren't practiced in this and may have to do some work that they haven't been accustomed to. And that is another way of talking about white privilege. Um, you haven't had to work as hard to get in. I'm, I'm clearly a product of that myself. Nevertheless, she said that the term that she thinks is more functional than white fragility has to do with stamina and whether or not somebody has the stamina to be multicultural, yeah. to talk, yeah. yeah. And that's that's what I think you're talking about. Mm -hmm. This is about, you, you have given witness to and manifested in your own life um, an athleticism, a, democ a democracy athleticism that is in the tradition yeah. of people of color, and um, people who were gay, LGBTQ, and I think people who are prophetic. Mm. I mean, who get that Jesus had an affection for the section of the Bible called the prophets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's here's the thing. Yes, I I am practiced in resistance and the art of resisting. And um, you know, I was I was raised in a context that told me that because I was a girl, I couldn't do this thing that God called me to, which was to be a pastor. And I was raised in a type of religious community that told me that because of who I loved, I couldn't do this work um, that I was called to do, which is to be a pastor. And because of the state that I live in, I was told that nobody's ever done this before. They had never been an out senator before. And so you probably can't do that. Um, but what I've learned on each step of the way is that uh, I practice that resistance, but people are practicing it with me and that I'm never alone in that. And, um, and what I also have learned is that people who aren't necessarily uh, rooted in the same African-American heritage that I am in, that when they kind of join alongside, they start exercising the muscle of resistance and they catch on, you know, you, you figure it out, right? Um, and, and so I think that's what I actually look forward to as we consider 2022 and, and the level of resistance that we will have to mount is that there are a lot of people who are gonna have to exercise those muscles, some for the first time, but once you exercise them the first time, 
you want to do it again. And you, and it also opens your eyes, I think, right, to seeing all the other ways that resistance is necessary. Um, to put it in more religious language, it opens your eyes to see how you can be more like Jesus. What are the other places? So it, it might start with all of a sudden you rise up to protect the ballot box, but it might end with you going in and saying, let's figure out this prison situation and get people free, right? I mean, so that's what I'm excited about is people having a taste of what it means to resist, to practice that, to exercise that muscle, and then to see how it might take us forward. My, my, my. Lord, Lord, Lord. This is what people don't understand is that when you make life harder for people, we become stronger. That's the thing. We become stronger and we can really change the world in really powerful ways when we recognize our strength. Powerful. Kim, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for this time. Are there any questions that I didn't ask or any words you feel called upon to deliver right now? I, I do just want to continue to thank St. Luke's for all of the support that you provide to Common Ground. You all are, um, by and large, our largest and biggest fans. And I, I want to thank FAN, um, your group. Uh, I don't know what it stands Faith in Action. Faith and Faith and Advocacy. Faith and Adv Advocacy. Um, that network of folks have reached out to me to support me as a senator um, and you all have worked out, reached out to say, how can we support um, congregants who live on the streets? Um, what policy initiatives can we promote? And so I'm just very, very grateful that you all have taken your power, your, you know, your privilege that you have to, to really come together and advocate on behalf of the least and the lost. And so thank you so much for that. Well, on behalf of all the people at St. Luke's, you are very welcome. And thank you for being one of our leaders. Um, you know, we, we, have, we have some wonderful values and um, we want to manifest them. And a lot of us pass by a lot of other churches to get downtown because we, to use my language, we want to solve some of the world's intractable problems that you have in the urban core. And that desire has to have leadership. It has to have people who are willing to step out and people who are willing to be creative and fearless in the face of intractable problems. And uh, you are one of those people. We really, really appreciate leading us and we count on you. So thanks a lot, Kim. Well, thanks so much. It's a blessing to be able to be in ministry with you all. Thank you. It's been great to have this conversation. Thanks again. Take care. Okay. And thank you all for joining us on this Sunday forum. Keep tuning in and we promise you some illumination and transformation and challenge. Have a good week. Bye-bye.